This is a Scream Queen production. So Dead, I am your host, Jen Carpenter. Happy True Crime Tuesday! It is time for our third annual Halloween episode. Third annual! Can you even freaking believe it? That is bananas. So our Halloween episodes have turned into me reading your ghost stories. So listeners have sent me their ghost stories. I am going to read them to you. And then at the end, I have my own to submit. Before we get into it, though, I do want to thank today's sponsor. Who better to sponsor our Halloween episode than Wicked Clothes? Anything to do with true crime, the paranormal, cryptids, they've got a shirt for it. We're in mid-October now, so I've got to believe it's going to start getting chilly soon here, right? And I'm so excited to be able to wear my Mothman hoodie. It's comfy and it has the coolest kind of like retro neon design. I love it, and it's been too hot to wear it still in the middle of October. That one and then my conspiracy theory tee that I got from them, I wear that one probably once a week with no jacket because it's still 80 degrees. It's super soft. It's got a great fit. Every time I wear it, someone's like, oh, hey, nice shirt. And I'm like, wicked clothes, my dude. (laughs) Visit wickedclothes.com to check out what they've got. I'm positive that you'll find something you love. Make sure to use promo code SODET at checkout to save 10% on your order, or just use the link wickedclothes.com slash SODED to have the discount applied automatically. Huge thanks to Wicked Clothes for sponsoring today's episode. All right, let's get into it. Remember way back the first year that we did the ghost stories when Deadhead Maggie sent us in a story about Stony Boy? the little ghost boy at a local YMCA camp. I was so fascinated because this was one I had never heard about. I'd never read about it anywhere. I still have not been able to find anything about Stony Boy besides stuff that has been sent into us here at the podcast until now because another deadhead who wished to remain anonymous also has a Stony Boy story. So I'm going to go ahead and share that one with you now. It says, I work with kids and teens at a local nonprofit. For years, we have taken the teenagers on a winter retreat weekend to get away and play. We've stayed at a variety of camps in Michigan and Indiana over the years, but one of our favorite locations is at a particular YMCA camp not far from Lansing. 
My coworker had been on staff at this site a few summers before and was excited to return for our retreat the first time we went in 2012. The first night of retreat is always bonkers. We arrive at dinner time, unpack all the vans, play icebreaker games, and settle in. It's a late night by the time all the students are asleep. After lights out, the adults often gather in the common space to decompress and plan for the next day. That particular night, we foolishly sat up around the fireplace until almost 2 a.m. When I finally climbed into my bunk, I was exhausted and I fell asleep as soon as my head hit the pillow. I wasn't asleep for long when I heard my name being whispered in a panicked tone. I opened my eyes to see my coworker anxiously pacing by my bunk. She explained that she had been lying in bed and could hear the sound of water running, but hadn't heard one of the girls get out of bed. Confused and groggy, I said, Okay, do you want me to come with you and check it out? She answered, No, I want you to go. I rolled my eyes, grabbed a flashlight and my stainless steel water bottle to bludgeon a paranormal thing. I don't know, guys. It was late. And I go to track down the noise. My coworker huddled behind me. We look in both shower stalls and find nothing. Following the sound of rushing water, we end up leaving the girls' dorm and end up in the hallway that connects to the common space. The water sound is so loud now. It sounds like gallons and gallons of water pouring onto a concrete floor. We find ourselves standing outside a locked utility closet. I look under the door with a flashlight to see if I can see water running onto the floor, but I don't see anything. My coworker is visibly relieved and shrugs her shoulders to go back to bed. Meanwhile, I, who had suffered three miserable basement floods in my own home, was wondering if we should call the emergency maintenance line. I try to rationalize what could sound like water pouring all over the floor. A sump pump cistern, maybe, a hot water heater filling. I laid awake in my bunk, listening to water pouring on concrete for well over an hour. None of it made sense, and when I did finally drift off to sleep, it was with the full expectation that we would wake up to a flooded cabin. Of course, the next morning everything was fine, and we didn't hear that sound again for the duration of the weekend. For years, we shared this story with lots of laughter and drama. My coworker dubbed it the Lake Monster Story, because the next morning, when recounting the story, one of the students asked what she was afraid of, and she responded, I don't know, a lake monster? She told me later she was really worried it was the girl from The Grudge. <laughs> Fast forward to October 2019. I was at my desk listening to So Dead, episode 41, Ghosted, only to hear other people writing about an eerily similar experience at the same location and a local legend about a drowned boy, Stony Boy. The experience put shivers down my spine and I immediately shared it with my former coworker. We both agreed it was odd, but she's a skeptic in the light of day and didn't think it added to our experience. When we decided to return to this same camp for this year's winter retreat, I made a very conscious decision to keep the podcast to myself. Nobody needed to go into the weekend spooked, and while all of the adult staff had heard the lake monster story before, nobody took it to heart. What followed was a 48-hour whirlwind of chaos— a building full of teens is always fun and chaotic, 
but this year was especially intense. Pro tip, probably don't take teenagers into the woods during a full moon. Oh Lord. The whole weekend, I felt restless and troubled. I couldn't sleep well, waking often to what I thought sounded like the girls' dorm room opening and closing and running footsteps in the common space. I checked it out a few times, but always found a dark, still room. Stony boy, I'd think, but I never said it out loud. On our last night, the adults were sitting around the fireplace after lights out when we heard what sounded like a scream. We all dashed off to our dorms to figure out what was happening, but every single student was sound asleep. Jesus. Perhaps we had an active dreamer, but the odds that all the other students would have slept through it seems unlikely. Several times that night, as a few adults worked to pack up the common space, we heard what sounded like wet, bare feet running on the tile floor in the front hallway. Others would say, did you hear that? And go to investigate, always coming back, shrugging their shoulders. There was no doubt in my mind that Stony Boy was with us that weekend. At the end of the weekend, after the students had been collected by their families, three of the adult staff were in the car together and I asked if I could play a podcast for them. I let them listen to the Stony Boy episode and watch their eyes get wider and wider. They excitedly chimed in with their own stories from the weekend. One of them had had the shower curtain repeatedly move like it was blowing in a breeze when there was no airflow in the closed bathroom. Another woke to what he thought was a student standing next to his bed, only to decide it was a strangely cast shadow rolling over to try and go back to sleep. Both of them heard what sounded like the showers or faucets running in the nighttime. I spoke with one of the female staff later that day who also shared her curious experiences. Four of the seven adults had personal encounters that weekend, and all but one of us was awake for the scream and footstep sounds in the common space. I've had a handful of paranormal experiences in my lifetime, but never one that was shared over such a long period of time or among such a wide group of people. It was truly wild. Oh, and after too many hours talking about him, we decided that Stony Boy deserved a proper name. Failing at finding any real details about the alleged camp director's son, we chose the most popular name of the era and now refer to him in our circle as George. Thanks for letting us share our haunting with the deadheads. Wow. <laughs> I can't. This is so crazy to me. I want to know everything. Um, if you have a Stony Boy experience, if you've heard about Stony Boy experiences at this particular YMCA camp, like, I want to hear them all. I am so, so fascinated by this one. So thank you so much for sending that story in. And I definitely want more Stony Boy content from anyone that may have some. This next ghost story comes from Deadhead Melissa. It says, I live next to a 1700s, 1800s cemetery in Smithville, New Jersey. No, thank you which is right on the Atlantic Ocean and was used to bury many shipwrecked people. Side note, this is the same area that the Jersey Devil and his mama Leeds, who I am actually distantly related to, are from. I have stories about the Jersey Devil, too. Back to my encounter. I was lying in bed playing on my phone. I felt the energy shift. My son, six at the time, was sleeping on the floor next to me, so I stayed in bed and quiet. 
A few minutes later, I feel pressure on the foot of the bed. Then this fucker crawled up me, put a hand on each side of my head. I could feel the indentations on my pillow. Then he ripped the pillow down under my head, so the pillow went from just under my head to down under my shoulders. Again, my son is asleep on the floor, and I didn't want to scare him, so I couldn't scream or move. I was shaking. I am an empath and have protection abilities, so there I laid, ghost hands still on either side of my head, whispering, only love and light can touch me. Only love and light can touch me for what felt like an eternity, but was probably about three minutes. I'm getting the heebie-jeebies just typing this out. He, I know it was a male, crawled back down off the bed, but he didn't leave the room. I did not sleep that night at all. I can still feel the pillow being pulled down. The very next day, we called a friend of a friend who is a medium. We knew that there was an entity in our house. We had seen shadows, felt like we were being watched, etc. from the first week we moved in. But this was the only physical interaction. The medium came to visit two days later. She picked up a man, German descent, in his early 20s, 1880s to 1890s, died by being crushed. Most days, I wear my hair pulled up pretty tight, but the day the medium came, it was down. She said, and I felt, that I reminded him of his wife. She got that he died in a crushing accident. We did a house blessing and helped him move on. I can give details on that if you want, but it's a lot to type. The medium also picked up on a child that was attached to me. Again, something I had felt. She said it was a baby I had lost and he needed a name. When the ritual was over, a doe walked into my backyard. We saw three the whole two years we lived there. The deer stopped on my hill, looked directly into my sliding door, bowed her head, and moved on. I took some time and decided to name the child spirit Alexander. Once I said his name, I felt him move on. The next year, my cousin lived 1,500 miles away, did not know anything about any of this stuff. She had a son, and she named him Alexander. I did do some research, and there was an accident that killed several men by crushing. I don't remember the exact details, but I could find the info again if you wanted. Oh, we want. Um, so there is my sexual encounter with a ghost. <laughs> so crazy. Oh, that's crazy. Thank you so much, though, for sending that in, Melissa. This next one was sent in by a deadhead who asked to remain anonymous. Here goes. I lost my brother last year unexpectedly. My wedding anniversary was about three months after his passing, and I was really struggling with the grief. So my husband planned a weekend trip to one of our favorite places to get me away from all the sadness for a few days. We went to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, to a beautiful place in the mountains and took in the sights, watched for bears in the National Forest, and decided on a whim to do a haunted Gatlinburg tour. We had never done one before, but have been wanting to, so I was really excited. There is so much history in Gatlinburg. I have never been a big believer in contact from the other side, but I'm always happy to keep an open mind. The tour guide handed out some various gadgets to use along the tour to determine if we were in the presence of spirits, and the group traded off throughout the tour, laughing and joking along the way. I was more concerned 
with running into bears. We were told, come down out of the mountains at night than I was about encountering spirits. That <laughs> that sounds like me back out on our Demented Mitten tours. But I kept my eyes peeled for any movement, living or otherwise. We learned a few stories about the founding of the town, but many of those told centered around the fires that tore through in 2016, destroying much of the surrounding area. The tour ended at an old church in the middle of downtown Gatlinburg. It has beautiful, ornate doors and a pretty gable that faces the town. We were told the story about how the church survived the fires and was used as a shelter, and about those that didn't make it to the church in time. Right about that time, a woman in our group had a device that plays music when in the presence of spirits. I forget the name of it. And when she walked near me a couple times, it would play. She and my husband joked that I was haunted. We all laughed and then moved on. Another person in the group had an ovalis. He walked by me and it started repeating two words over and over. It would say, sister, and then it would say my sister-in-law's name, my brother's wife. It just kept repeating sister and her name over and over. I heard him say it and looked at my husband, who then looked at the guy holding the device. The guy then asked the tour guide what was wrong with the device because it just kept repeating those two words, sister and his wife's name, over and over. We couldn't stay to see how long it kept saying it because I couldn't hold it together any longer. I cried all the way back to the cabin. I don't know if that was my brother or not, but it was definitely the closest and most emotional paranormal experience I've ever had. That one makes me so sad. I mean, and it it definitely sounds like it was her brother. So an avalis, I think we've talked about this before, but an avalis is a device where spirits are supposed to be able to be, it's like a speaking spell for, for ghosts. So they're supposed to be able to pick words out of the dictionary in the device um, and communicate them to you. It's a lot easier than them having to work up the energy to audibly project words. Um, they can just kind of pick them out of this dictionary and say them to you. And so that's that sounds like that's what happened. That's a really sweet one, though. This one is from Deadhead Tammy Austin, who has had so many paranormal encounters. Girl, you okay? <laughs> no, I know she is. And I'm so glad that she sends these to us because she's always got the craziest stories. Um, this one is about the most haunted place she's ever visited. She says, My grandparents' farmhouse. It was built around 1855. They lived a ways out from town. So when someone passed away, they would take the doors off the hinges of what we call the back bedroom and would lay the body on it. Fast forward to the early 80s when my sister and I would sleep in that room during sleepovers. Woo boy, nothing like the pungent smell of fresh lilacs in the middle of a cold winter's night. Or going to the bathroom, which was just off that room. It was added much later. I'm not sure what year. They took space from the kitchen to add it. Anyways, nothing like the feeling of someone watching you pee in the (laughs) middle of the night. Or seeing a black figure in the doorframe while you were in the bathroom and then running like the devil himself was chasing you out into the family room for your parents to put you straight back in said bed inside the creepy room just next to the bathroom. My sister and I both swear there was an older, totally terrifying woman who would look down on us from the attic window. 
I just recently found out that my sister could see her too. I was up in the attic once. It was like the attic in the Goonies. Treasure everywhere. Oh my God, I want that so bad. I have moved into two houses that were built in the 1920s, hoping that the attics were full of treasure and they were just full of dust and spiders. And that is very uncool. Anyway, treasure everywhere. The stuff they saved, wowzers. Anyways, I heard someone in the living room beneath me and thought they were coming upstairs. When I called down, no one answered, and when I went to go look, no one was on the stairs or in that room. They were all in the kitchen and family room. No one had been walking up to go investigating with me that I could see. Yikes. All right, so this one is from my friend Roxanne Rhodes, author of Haunted Flint. A version of this story actually appears in her book, Haunted Flint. It says, I inherited my home from my grandmother. My grandfather built the house but passed away before it was completed. My mother and father finished the construction so my grandmother could move in. I've lived in the home with all its ghosts since I was 18. The main area of activity is what was once my grandmother's bedroom, though I never remember her actually sleeping in that room. Whenever I stayed with her, she would sleep in the living room. She seemed to avoid that room. The door was always shut and no one ever went in there. When I first moved into that house, that room became the nursery because it was the closest bedroom to the master suite. First, it was my oldest son's room. Back then, I never knew he had any issues with it. Now that he's an adult, he has told me about his scary experiences, how he would listen to footsteps in the night, lying awake, terrified, until he finally fell asleep exhausted, hiding under the blankets. I swear he grew up to have fear-induced narcolepsy because now he tends to fall asleep during horror movies. When my daughter was born, it became her room. Had I known my son's problems with the room, I might not have put my baby girl in there. She never slept well in that room. She constantly fussed and cried and wanted out of her crib, though sometimes the fussing wasn't her. I would hear strange noises and crying through the baby monitor only to walk in and find her asleep. No, thank you. One night when she was a toddler, my husband heard a strange noise after putting her to bed. He walked into the room and found all the drawers on the dresser open, yet our daughter was in her bed sound asleep. No, no, no. There was no way she could have opened all the drawers, then crawled back in bed before he opened her drawer. Plus, she was still so small she wouldn't have even been able to reach the top drawer. Throughout the years, she would wake up every night and want out of that room. Once she was big enough to have a toddler bed, she would leave her room and crawl in bed with me or go to her big brother and crawl in bed with him. Once we moved her to another room, she slept in her own bed just fine. My youngest, he absolutely refused to have anything to do with that room ever. His toddler bed stayed in my room until the oldest moved out and the kid could have his own room that was not the nursery. That room has a tendency to creep most of the family out. Whenever one of us is home alone, the door gets closed. Now that room is my husband's office and man cave. More than once, I've been home alone and the television in there turned on all by itself. The house would be completely quiet, then all of a sudden, voices. Terror gripped me until I realized it was coming from a TV. Then another jolt of fear ran through me as I realized it was coming from that room and that there was no explanation for the TV to be coming on by itself. 
The door was closed. There were no cats in that room, which meant no pause to step on the remote and accidentally turn it on, which they have done in the living room a few times. My husband has had several unexplained encounters in there. Many times he has seen a dark figure walk through the room and stand by the window as if looking out, searching. One night he had an entire conversation with a female teenager that no one else could see. It could have been the volume he was on, but the story spooked me because she was around the same age as our daughter, and having a female teen ghost fit with the fact that several times I had heard a female sneeze in a young woman's voice, even though I was all alone in the house. Since then, there have been several encounters with this teen spirit. My husband and oldest son have spotted a middle-aged woman with her hair in a bun, dressed in 1950s-style business attire, walk through the living room and vanish. This tends to happen around 7 a.m. on Saturday mornings. She does not seem to be a sentient spirit. I have often wondered if she worked at Flint Park, which part of my house came from and is just a residual haunting, a memory imprint playing on loop. My husband and other males have also seen another older woman in the house from time to time. A couple of my daughter's friends have asked her, who's the old woman on the couch? Or who's that old lady in the kitchen? No one else has seen an old woman. One night, my husband walked out of his room and turned white as a ghost himself. He looked towards the kitchen and said, there's an old woman standing in the doorway, but I know she's not really there. I was spooked the entire night constantly looking over my shoulder to see if I could catch a glimpse of her. Now he'll just randomly say, the old woman is standing by the television, or the old woman is on the couch. My husband has described the appearance of the manifestation to me, but the description doesn't seem to fit my grandmother, even though two psychics and a couple sensitives have said they feel her presence in the home protecting me. There have been many other odd occurrences in the house, like the basement door that opens by itself, numerous things that simply disappear only to reappear in plain sight, and music that you can just hear off in the distance, but you can never quite make out the words or the tune. You can check every room in the house, but you will never find the source. We've gotten used to the haunts and usually joke about them, but a few incidents have shaken me up pretty bad, and they occurred in my bedroom, the one room in the house that had always been a safe haven for me, the room free of creepiness, until one night I was roused from my sleep by the creaking of my floorboards. All around my bedroom, the old floors creak when you walk on them. Even I have a hard time avoiding the creaky spots because they surround my bed. One night I woke up to the sound of someone pacing back and forth at the end of my bed. I could tell the location of the movement of whatever it was by the distinct creaks the boards make. I was paralyzed with fear. I knew no one could have been in my bedroom. The door never opened. I used to immediately wake up when my door opened thanks to the loud scraping sound it made from sticking in the doorframe. My husband replaced the door after this incident, so thankfully it no longer does that. I laid there listening to the pacing movement. I tried to listen for anything else, breathing, a voice, but there was nothing. Finally, I took a deep breath, gathered my courage, and sat up with my eyes wide open, ready to confront the pacing spirit. The sound abruptly stopped, and of course, nothing was there. A few nights later, I awoke to a strange sound. It was a weird rattling, shaking noise. Nonstop. It just kept shaking. 
I couldn't take it. I got up, turned on my light, and began to search the room for the annoying noise. I found the sound on my desk. It was my bobblehead turtle, Bob. His head was bobbling like an invisible hand was shaking him at warp speed. Yet the rest of him was not moving. Nothing else was moving. Nothing in the room was rattling, vibrating, or shaking. Just his head moving extremely fast. I stood there in shock and just stared at him. Finally, I grabbed his head and stopped it from moving. I picked him up and looked closely at him. I shook him really fast. No matter what I did, I could not make his head repeat that previous movement. It seemed humanly impossible to replicate the movement. I took Bob out of the room. He was banished. (laughs) Now I tend to find him in odd places when I clean, like under my desk, in my closet, under my bed. I have no idea where he is at this moment. Frankly, I don't care as long as his head never moves like that again. I don't know what or who was trying to get my attention that week, nor do I know why. I metaphysically cleansed and salted my room. For a long time, nothing else happened. Then one night, I was once again awoken by my creaking floorboards. But this time, something felt really off. For the first time, I was really terrified in my home. This entity was not one of my normal spirits. Anger, menace, something negative was lurking in my room. I was going to turn my head and look, but something stopped me. It felt like a hand on my forehead. It held me in place and covered my eyes as if telling me, no, don't look. So I didn't. I lay there, filled with terror, barely able to breathe until the pressure on my head was gone and the creaking of the floorboards stopped. When the sinister feeling dissipated, the room became calm and still. I opened my eyes and sat up. Nothing was there. After that, I did a very thorough metaphysical cleanse on my room. I added protection crystals and symbols. Later, a psychic came in and cleansed our entire house. Some strange things still occur, but nothing sinister. We're back to the normal benign spirits of our odd haunted house. Cleansings are geared to remove negativity, harmful energy, entities, and spirits. So our regular ghosties are benevolent, so far anyway. Our normal spirits consist of three female ghosts, an old grandmotherly woman, the middle-aged woman in business attire, and an older teen slash young 20s woman. There's also the man in the hat. Unlike most hat man hauntings, he seems to be a protector, not a malevolent figure. I remember seeing him when I was a kid, and all three of my kids have reported seeing him. We've gotten used to our regular spirits, As long as they don't terrorize us, we can all live in harmony. Holy moly. I I would move. I say that, but I didn't. We lived in a haunted house for five years, and we didn't move because it was haunted. We just moved because we wanted more space. Um, Yeah, wild, though. Thank you so much for sending that in, Roxanne. All right, last one. This is actually my ghost story, or a story of mine that includes a ghost, at least. I am going to keep some of the locations kind of vague in this one, just just because. Uh, so, I had an event recently. I do a lot of events in October, obviously, um, and this event was at a local distillery. And it's in an area that I'm pretty familiar with. It's I don't really visit there 
much anymore, but I used to spend a lot of time in this part of town. And I had not been to this particular establishment yet because my bar nights are long over, like long, long over. Uh, Anyway, as I was arriving, it dawned on me that this location was right next to a spot where a horrific, like horrific crime occurred back in the 40s. This is a story that I stumbled across while I was researching something else, and it is such a sad one that I actually never intended to talk about it on the podcast until this happened. So I get there, I set up, I do my thing, and as I'm getting ready to leave, a couple of employees and the owners all super nice people, by the way, start telling me about how they are getting ready to have a paranormal investigation because they're pretty sure that their building is haunted. And they start telling me about some of the things that have been happening, lots of like trickster type stuff, footsteps running down the hall, salt and pepper shakers tipped over when they've been filled and set on their shelves. And it it all kind of reminded me a little bit of the types of things that we used to deal with back when we lived in our haunted house with our little ghost boy, Bobby, which makes perfect sense. Um, So I got to have like this dream moment, right? The one that happens in every movie where a house is being haunted, someone comes in and tells the owners exactly who their ghost is and how they got there. And I got to do that, which is a very rare thing because it's easy to take a space where you know something awful has happened. Take like the site of the Bath School bombing massacre, for instance. So we know that something really awful happened there. We know that a lot of people lost their lives there. So paranormal investigators will come into that space with equipment to investigate it because they know already that there should be spirit activity there. When it happens the other way around, when it's a house that is haunted, like, for example, the one that my family lived in from 2012 to 2017, when it starts with the haunting and then you start bringing people in to investigate and they verify that, yes, there are absolutely spirits here, and then you do the historical research to try to find out why, this is where we separate from the Hollywood versions because it's very common to not find anything. We never found anything. We have no idea why that house that we lived in was so haunted. So for this story to start with a haunting, they knew nothing about the history of the building. They just knew that they thought they had a little ghost boy. And then for me to be able to come in and say, yes, you do have a little ghost boy Here's his name. Here's a picture of him. Let me tell you what happened. Like, I felt like I was like the little lady in the poltergeist for a minute. This house is clear. (laughs) Just kidding. I actually just watched that with my kids a couple weeks ago. Anyway, I got to tell them that the reason their paranormal activity seems so playful and harmless is because their ghost is that of a little boy by the name of Pee-wee Eaton. Pee-wee, yes, like Pee-wee, who was murdered in 1949 in what officials called the most brutal crime the city of Lansing had ever seen. 
And honestly, it still might be the most brutal crime that the city of Lansing has ever seen. It's bad. So if you want to leave this episode just feeling kind of like spooky Halloween vibes, honestly, turn it off now because once you hear this one, you'll never be able to unhear it. Before we get into it, though, I do want to thank today's other sponsor, Every Plate. Experience full plates and fuller wallets with America's best value meal kit. Let Every Plate plan, shop, and deliver everything you need to cook a delicious meal at a delightful price. Recipes come together in about 30 minutes, definitely faster than making a grocery list, going to the grocery store, hoping they have all of the ingredients you need, right, with all of these shortages lately, then coming back home and cooking. Let Every Plate do the hunting and gathering for you at a fraction of the price of other meal kit services, and then you just throw it all together and cook it up. Voila, wholesome family dinner. It's that easy. Home cooking will always be one of my biggest mom fails. I'm not good at it. I don't have time for it, but Every Plate makes it easy, and the best part is it's super affordable. Try Every Plate for just $1.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code SODEAD199. Again, that's $1.99 per meal, everyplate.com, and then enter promo code SODEAD199. It is that easy. All right, I gave you time to turn it off. Here comes the trauma. Today, Michigan Avenue in downtown Lansing is a pretty nice little area. There is the Lansing Lugnuts Baseball Stadium, the Capital City Market, lots of good little restaurants and bars and businesses. Back in the 1940s, though, it was a totally different scene. It was mostly flop houses and dive bars, home to some of the city's poorest residents. But among them was a sense of community. Take the family of Walter Peewee Eaton, for example. The little blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy who liked to wear his dad's hats lived at 511 East Michigan Avenue in Lansing with his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Leslie Eaton, and his four older siblings. The apartment building the Eatons lived in was located where the Lansing Lugnut Stadium is now. Next door to the Eatons lived Peewee's real family, unbeknownst to him. Pee-wee was actually born Walter Eugene Jones on August 18, 1944. His birth parents, Alfred and Annabelle Jones, were the Eaton's next-door neighbors. They lived at 509.5 East Michigan. Pee-wee was their first child, and they were finding it hard to financially support him. The Eaton's helped the Joneses care for Pee-wee, Their kids were older. They were older. They were both in their 40s. Mrs. Eaton grew so attached to Pee-wee that she asked Alfred and Annabelle to let her and her husband adopt him, and they did. So when little Pee-wee was just a few months old, he was adopted by his parents' next-door neighbors, and then he continued to live next door to his birth parents for his entire life with no idea that they were actually his parents. Alfred and Annabelle had two more little boys that they kept, and Pee-wee often played with these little boys. They were his friends, but he was unaware that they were actually his full biological brothers. And I'm sure that someday they planned to tell him the truth, right? But unfortunately, they never got the chance. 
So Pee Wee lived with his adopted parents and adopted siblings, but next door to his birth parents and biological brothers. A family friend that he thought of as an uncle, but was actually sort of his brother, lived just on the road at 625 and a half East Michigan Avenue. Dudley Beatty was the former stepson of Pee-wee's birth father, Alfred Jones. Are you confused? I'm confused too. Basically, Alfred was married before he married Annabelle, so um, Pee-wee's biological dad was married before he married Pee-wee's mom, and his first wife had a son, Dudley. So Alfred raised Dudley as his own son for 14 years, and then after he divorced Dudley's mom, the two men remained close friends, and they even worked together doing auto repair, kind of like an under-the-table type thing. And, of course, they were neighbors. They lived on the same street, just, you know, a few apartments apart. Um, Just, you know, one big old happy family, right? They were once. On the night of June 23rd, 1949... The Eatons, the Joneses, and Dudley were getting shit-faced at the bar, conveniently located right underneath their apartments, um, while the kids just kind of ran amok all over town. Two witnesses later recalled seeing four-year-old Pee-wee riding his tricycle alone at almost 10 o'clock at night on the corner of Michigan Avenue and Cedar Street. Can you, my Lansing friends, like, Even as safe as that area is now, can you imagine it? I can't even picture it. So while all of the adults that were supposed to be looking after Pee-wee were not, he was out riding his little tricycle, playing with his siblings, the ones he knew about and the ones he didn't know about, um, and and the other neighborhood kids. About 9.30 that night, Pee-wee's bio dad, Alfred Jones, found himself so inebriated that he couldn't carry himself up the stairs to his apartment. So his former stepson, now friend, neighbor, and co-worker, Dudley Beatty, was called upon to help get Alfred up the stairs into his apartment. And once he got him settled, Dudley went down to the convenience store across the street, and he purchased four large bottles of champagne velvet beer, then headed for home. As he approached the alley that ran behind his apartment building, he saw little Pee Wee Eaton wearing a striped shirt, bib overalls, and a floppy hat of his dad's that was way too big for his little head. Sitting on his tricycle, Pee Wee looked up at the familiar man and said, Get me an ice cream, Duddy. So he called him Duddy. I don't know if it was because he couldn't say Dudley or if it was just a nickname, but that was the specific quote in the newspaper. Get me an ice cream, Duddy. And I want to pause for a minute. You guys know that I don't do trigger warnings often. This is a true crime podcast, for fuck's sake. But this is probably the most awful story I've told on the show yet. So if you don't feel like being deeply traumatized today, this is your last chance. Turn back now. So four-year-old Pee-wee asked 29-year-old Dudley, his brother kind of, even though he didn't know it, to take him for ice cream. Dudley told Pee-wee to leave his bike and he would take him to go get some sweets. So Pee-wee abandoned his tricycle and followed Dudley down the alley. This was not stranger danger in any way. This was a man Pee-wee was very close to and had no reason not to trust. 
But Dudley didn't take PB to the nearby ice cream shop. He led him instead to an area that police referred to as the Hobo Jungle. Today, we would just call it a homeless encampment, but this was 1949 and the police did not give a fuck. It was a stockyard located kind of where like the Lansing Lugnuts outfield is today with towers of barrels, abandoned train cars, and lots of overgrown bushes and trees. According to Dudley, he took Pee Wee to the hobo jungle instead of the ice cream store because he'd been overcome by a sick urge. Once they were in the stockyard, Dudley began to molest Pee Wee. When Pee-wee screamed for help, Dudley took one of those big champagne velvet beer bottles he'd just purchased, and he bashed Pee-wee over the head with it with such force that the bottle broke and Pee-wee fell to the ground unconscious. Still holding the skinny end of the bottle, Dudley used the jagged edge to slash Pee-wee's throat. He then stashed Pee-wee's tiny body among the stacks of barrels, picked up his three remaining bottles of beer, and ran home to his apartment at 625 and a half East Michigan Avenue, covered in blood. He stashed his bloody clothes in his closet, took a shower, and downed those three beers as he tried to put what he'd done out of his mind. He was passed out by the time police came knocking a few hours later. About the same time Pee-wee was being savagely murdered was when his family realized he was missing. By 10.30, all of the other kids had wound up somehow wherever they were supposed to be, but Pee-wee was nowhere to be found. So his parents went to look for him, and the first thing they found was his little tricycle abandoned in the alley. So they put together a search party, and all of the neighbors started looking for the little boy who was just a couple months from his fifth birthday. Just after midnight, two members of the search party were walking through the stockyard when they saw Pee-wee's oversized floppy hat in the dirt. And then his little overalls crumpled into a pile, and then a massive pool of blood. And finally, Pee-wee's tiny, mangled body stuffed between the storage barrels. The city of Lansing was shook, as they should be. Police were certain right from the start that someone in the neighborhood was responsible. They knocked on every door, including Dudley Beatty's, asking questions. They searched every flop house and abandoned building. They called it the most violent crime the city had ever seen and launched the largest search-slash-investigation in LPD history. Mothers stopped letting their children play outside unattended— probably a fucking good thing. A curfew was instituted. Pee-wee's parents, both sets, were devastated. And who was right there with them, crying over this senseless loss, raging over how someone could do something like that to a little boy? Their good friend Dudley Beatty, of course. He was a father of four himself. Like, sure, the state had taken his children away from him because he was an unfit father, but potatoes, potatoes, right? His show of support only lasted a few days, though, because the day of Pee-wee's funeral, June 27th, 1949, instead of attending the service with the rest of his friends and neighbors, he went to the police station, and he told the first officer he saw, I want to give myself up for killing that kid. I can't stand it any longer. 
He gave a full confession to the stunned detective, and when he finished, he wept and said, you ought to do the same thing to me that I did to him. But Michigan was neither an eye for an eye nor a death penalty state at the time. So when Dudley Beatty pled guilty to first-degree murder, he was simply sentenced to life without the possibility of parole at Jackson State Prison. The most recent article I found on Dudley Beatty was from 2006. It was a report on rising prison costs. He was 86 years old at the time, which made him the oldest prisoner at the Lakeland Correctional Facility in Coldwater. And this is what the article said about him. This is 2006. It says, Convicted of murder in 1949, the World War II veteran once was a dangerous man, but now... I have heart trouble, high blood pressure. I'm taking medicine for that all the time. Every few years, he asks the parole board to let him go, but he always gets the same answer. They send me these Dear John letters, he said. They're not interested in my case. Fuck you. Like, seriously, so hard. The article says absolutely nothing about the heinousness of the crime that he committed. It just portrays him as this old guy with health problems that won't be released from prison. Are you kidding me? It's killing me. It just kills me. Anyway, um, if he were alive today, he'd be 101 years old. So hopefully he's like in a cheap ass unmarked grave somewhere with worms for eyeballs. But I really don't know. I couldn't find anything beyond that 2006 article. So, yeah, I've just been like sitting on this story for a few years because I found it and I read all about it and I was horrified and I was just kind of like, this is too awful to talk about. But then when I found out that this business that is located right on the alley where little Pee Wee Eaton's tricycle was abandoned where he was kind of ripped from his life and taken to this horrible place and met his horrible fate. Um, And the building right near where that started is haunted by the ghost of a little boy. I just, I couldn't keep this one a secret anymore. So that is my ghost story submission for this year. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. And thank you to everyone who submitted a story for this year's Halloween episode We'll do it again next year. couple quick things. There is a Halloween event in Rio Town this year that Dead Time Stories is going to be a part of. Kind of lots of different things going on throughout the day on October 30th. There will be an artisan market hosted by Vintage Junkies that'll be in the parking lot of the Cadillac Room. So kind of that big parking lot um, between the two sets of buildings right across the street from my shop. The Artist's Umbrella will be there doing performances. Lots of restaurants and shops will have, you know, trick-or-treating available, maybe some extended hours. We're going to be open late. We're going to be open until 9 that night. Um, This is October 30th, Saturday, because Halloween's on a Sunday this year. And then at Dead Time Stories, from 12 to 3, we're going to have some local authors come in horror, paranormal, true crime. We're going to have some authors on hand selling and signing copies of their books. We're going to have candy for the kids to pass out. Not 
I said that wrong. The kids don't have to pass out the candy. We're going to pass out the candy to the kids. <laughs> um, and then we're staying open late. We'll be open till nine on the 30th. So come and see us, please. Oh, yeah. So top of the town. If you're in the Lansing area, you're familiar with um, the local newspaper, The City Pulse. Every year they do this top of the town competition. Voting is going on right now, final round. The top five in each category are, are in the final round. And we've made it into a few categories. So I'm just going to – we actually made it into like 12 categories this year. So I'm just going to tell you a few of them though. So um, under the best whatever category for best local podcast, please go vote for So Dead. Uh, on that note, under the best people category for best realtor, you will find our girl, Danny. So make sure you vote for her as well. Under the best services, you will find um, Erica Joe Photography for best photographer. That is my good friend and the photographer that did the pictures for both Haunted Lansing and the Serial Killer Chronicles. Under best whatever for best local event slash festival is the Festival of Oddities, as well as under best local art festival. Festival? I had to mess up a word somewhere today, right? Um, festival is also, Festival of Oddities is up for that. Under best shopping for best local bookstore, of course, Dead Time Stories is in the running this year. And then for best local gift shop, the Screamatorium is in the running. Best haunted attraction, Demented Mitten Tours is up for... I don't I I'm leaving some out but I'm leaving them out intentionally cuz it would just be annoying to say them all. Um oh oh oh. Um under best whatever for best business with a pet, Karen and Georgia, my little budgies, my little birdies at the time stories got nominated. They're up against a couple dogs and a kitten and a couple of really adorable giant tortoises. So, um yeah, they're a long shot, but we can do it, right? Like we can we can do it. And then um, best services, again, most trustworthy business, Dead Time Stories got nominated, which is kind of awesome to me because I love that people see us as trustworthy. We, we're trying. We're trying. We're still the new kids on the block, but we're trying. So if you've got time, citypulse.com, top of the town is kind of right there at the top of the page. Voting doesn't go on for too terribly long. I'm not sure exactly when it ends, but if you're hearing this episode, it's probably pretty close to the end of the voting. So get on there and get voting if you have a few minutes. I would super appreciate it. Liquid cheese, liquid cheese. We're going to make this episode over an hour today. So for today's liquid cheese, let's do horror movies, right? It's Halloween time. We're all watching scary movies. Have you ever gone through a situation or just kind of found yourself in a predicament that was reminiscent of like a scene from a horror movie or the start of a scary movie? I've probably got... <laughs> More than one. But the one that comes to mind is when I was in my very first apartment of my own. So long story short, as you all know, I was a teen mom. I moved out for the first time with my little three-month-old baby and his dad. That didn't go well. So within a few months, I was back home with my parents um, and I was working full-time and I was saving up to get my 
own apartment with my little babe. And so when he was about 10 months old, we moved out of my parents' house again, just him and I. So he was 10 months old. I was 19 years old. And we got a cute little one-bedroom apartment over on the west side of Lansing. Well, um, I was very OCD. I don't have time to be that way anymore. There are just too many people in my house and I'm not here enough. But back then, I was the only adult that was in my apartment. So I knew where everything went, where everything was. And it was very easy for me to see when something was out of place. So like one night I came home and I went to grab a cup and, you know, I had bought brand new dishes because I had just moved out on my own. I didn't even drink coffee, but the dish set had, you know, like four coffee cups with it. And there's only three coffee cups. One of them is gone. And I'm like, what the fuck? So I look in my dishwasher. It's not there. It wasn't anywhere in my apartment. I thought it was super strange, but whatever. Um, I'm trying to remember. I remember the coffee cup specifically because it reminded me somehow of that scene in uh, Sleeping with the Enemy where like all the cans got turned around. <laughs> Do you remember that? I know you remember that. Like her husband was super OCD and the cans had to be facing a certain way. And when she escaped him, she threw that to the wind and she came home one day and he had rearranged all of her canned goods. And so she knew he was back. I don't know. Anyway, I'm dramatic, of course. So it reminded me of that. But there were lots of little things. I would say five or six things where things just were not where I had left them, not how I had left them, or certain objects were missing. I called and complained to the apartment building, and they treated me like I was crazy. But like looking back now, the maintenance guy or something. Okay, so it was either the maintenance guy was coming into my apartment and taking things and fucking with me. Or it was my son's dad because he did have a key to the apartment. I was working nights, so like I would drop our son off and then he would pick him up and take him back to my house to put him, my apartment to put him to bed. And I asked him every time, like, did you touch this? Did you move this? Um, and he would always say no, but he could have been messing with me in retrospect. It sounds like something he would do. But at the time, I was super freaked out, and um, yeah, the apartment building just kind of blew it off. And then, it, but then it stopped. So after I complained to the apartment building, it stopped happening. We lived there for about a year, and after I complained, it never happened again. So maybe it was the maintenance guy. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah. So liquid cheese for this week. I'm gonna put it in the Facebook group, the Soded Podcast Discussion Group. Tell me about a moment in your life that felt like a scene from a horror movie. Um, mine was the missing coffee cup reminiscent of sleeping with the enemy. That's it. We will be back in just a couple of weeks with another new episode. Just a reminder, just a heads up that we are almost at the end of season three. There's only two episodes left. There's two episodes in November and then... We're out of here for the holidays, just like every year, and we'll be back in February for the start of season four. Is that wild? That is wild. <laughs> See you in a couple weeks. Until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. 